Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com. And we are the children of the 80s. To another episode of Lunchtime Movie Review, the podcast where we look back at some of our childhood favorites and see if they stand the test of time. I'm Chris. I'm Lori. I'm Bobby. And this time we are reviewing 1988's Who Framed Roger Rabbit, directed by Robert Zemeckis and starring Bob Hodgkins, Christopher Lloyd, Joanna Cassidy, and a slew of voice actors. But before we begin, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Acme's Safe Proof Helmets. Do you have a fragile skull? Are you surrounded by a bunch of Looney Tunes? Do you hang your safes precariously from the ceiling? Then you need Acme's Safe Proof Helmets. Soft, squeaky, and fun for the whole family, Acme's Safe Proof Helmets will protect your chrome dome from rabbits, weasels, and wily judges. So don't doom yourself to a sad ending. Buy your Acme Safe Proof Helmet before you fall down and go boom. <laughs> I should have picked one that was not such a tongue twister, but I guess that's what you got to do for a, for a Looney Tune film. I think that's my favorite commercial I've heard. <laughs> it's because it's not lewd or anything. Exactly. <laughs> um, Bobby, you got a summary for us. I think so. We'll see. And if you need any additional voices for this, Lori's great. <laughs> Lori's voices. great. Yeah, Lori. Which 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 voices do you do, Lori? Um, Napoleon Dynamite. And <laughs> <laughs> Anything that doesn't oh, do fit do, Roger Rabbit. <laughs> I do do Betty Boop. I like Betty Boop. Oh, she's great. She's mm-hmm. in the movie. Yeah. All right. It's 1947 Hollywood, and Eddie Valiant, a down-on-his-luck detective, is hired to find proof that Marvin Acme, gag factory mogul and owner of Toontown, is playing hanky-panky with femme fatale Jessica Rabbit, wife of maroon cartoon superstar Roger Rabbit. When Acme is found murdered, all fingers point to Roger, who begs the toon-hating Valiant to find the real evildoer. You're just reading the DVD cover, and you missed a whole bunch of stuff. Well, that's the basic plot of the movie, Roger. There's that part about me and baby Herman. There's that part about me and Marvin Acme, God rest his soul. You can't forget about Daffy and Donald playing musical pianos, for goodness sake. And what about Jessica? Oh, Jessica. Yeah, but that's not the main point of the story. Well, Jessica's innocent. Innocent, I tell you. She'd never play hanky-panky with anyone but me. And don't forget Patty Cake. Oh, no. Patty Cake? Patty Cake? What? Now you've done it, Jessica. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Roger, calm down. What else did I miss in the intro? <laughs> well, well, geez, you missed all of Eddie's backstory about the wicked tune that iced his brother. How poor Eddie was petrified by that evil Judge Doom and his weasels. Oh, let me at him. They make me so mad. Well, people need to watch to see all the tune stars, too. I can give you stars. Look, look, look. Is there nothing that can permeate your impervious puss? Hey, Bobby. <laughs> Do you think we should discuss the rest of the movie here with the Lunchtime Movie Review crew? Only if you have to. I heard those guys and gals were loonier than the looniest characters in Toontown. 
and sexier too, especially that Chris Haley. Hubba hubba. And that is who framed Roger Rabbit. That's all, folks. The end. Okay, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was released on June 22nd, 1988, the same week as A Handful of Dust, the same month as Big, Funny Farm, Poltergeist 3, Bull Durham, The Great Outdoors, and Red Heat. The film was made on a budget of $70 million and grossed just under $330 uh, worldwide, was the second highest grossing film of 1988, right behind Rain Man. Wow. And it was right in front of Coming to America, Big, Twins, Crocodile, Dundee, um, Die Hard. I forget what the other big movies. It was a pretty good year for movies, in it? Old Durham, yeah. Yeah, and this was second best. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 97% critics and 84% audience. And that's all I got. Thank you all for listening this week, and we will see you next time. <laughs> good night. Good night. <laughs> So they played this this movie up a lot when it came out. I remember seeing trailers. It was on just about every TV show coming out. It was a big deal because they combined all the movie characters from every single, just about every single cartoon that was out at that point. Uh, they were able to license them to get in this movie. So it was a pretty big deal when it came out. Yeah, well, they brought up uh, Warner Brothers, and I mean, uh, Touchstone was the one that created the movie, and they're Disney. And uh, my understanding was when they they were trying to get Warner Brothers to allow the licensing for their characters, the Disney people wanted the 1940s version of each of the Warner Brothers characters, and Warner Brothers wanted their most recent incarnations of Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, and so on. And I guess they kind of snuck a some false paperwork through the Warner Brothers staff to approve at the same time that they were actually animating the 1940s version. So that was kind of an interesting twist. I didn't even notice that they had uh, different uh, versions in this film of some of the characters. Uh, well, they I were just... supposed to have the 1940s versions, mm -hmm. and they just had so many, I mean, even like Laurie was doing with Betty Boop. Betty Boop was 1920s, is that right? Yeah, 1920s. that's 30s well she was definitely based on a flapper but uh i guess she was around was that the 1940s mickey i i don't think mickey mouse i yeah i need to look at it again i think so it, it i know he was a throwback looking mouse um hmm. I, I, and i know that that was definitely uh daffy duck and bugs bunny from the 1940s hmm. i didn't even notice that it was back when not wearing pants was cool well, ducks ha ducks have a thing about not wearing pants. Mm -mm. Well, when they were singing, they didn't have their tails out, so or they're playing <laughs> on the piano. Yeah, Duck that was fun. <laughs> what, well, what's funny is uh, Howard the Duck. Um, Disney wanted them to. They wanted Howard to have pants, so people wouldn't and, get it confused with Donald Duck. And look what happened. Oh. That bomb bomb because he had no pants mm -hmm. exactly mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well i can do daffy so that was kind of fun you were really good <laughs> i i practiced daffy duck uh, in the piano recital as well so it was kind of fun now uh i hadn't seen this movie in forever and you know cartoons are always it's uh there's a lot of cartoon violence and this one uh definitely had it and it, to me, it was great, but 
Do you think? Uh, do you think this was a kid-friendly film because of it? Um, I think it's a little on the edge for kids, but but I still thought it was okay. Maybe the older kids, but not mm -hmm. the the very young set. That's more, you know, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Maybe not them, but the the older ones. I I think it would it would be okay. But there there was more from the language from the adult than in my opinion, than anything from the cartoons that I wouldn't want my kids, mm -hmm. if I had little ones repeating. You wouldn't want them to be drawn that way? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I just wouldn't want them to repeat <laughs> what they heard to their teacher <laughs> at school. <laughs> Did you play patty cake at home? <laughs> uh, what I noticed about this one was the... I think the target audience for this was not the the young. I think the target audience was more for a nostalgic look for those people that grew up on on the Disney and the Warner Brothers characters. Absolutely. And, and I think that's where – and I think that's why it was so popular was because this was basically a mid-20s and up age group that w this was targeted at. And when you've got a film noir with a bunch of classic characters that you remember that are – playing way out of character, but yet still in character. It was really a neat twist to a normal story that you wouldn't normally see. And especially when you're seeing Mickey Mouse and uh, Bugs Bunny sharing the same screen together or Donald and Daffy playing pianos, dueling pianos. I mean, that is just classic. You, you'll never see it again. And I just think that's those are once-in-a-lifetime moments. Absolutely. I remember seeing this movie and just falling in love with it. And I felt like I was having dinner with old friends with every mm -hmm. cameo from every character. I just, I was like a little kid. I was so excited. And, and I haven't, as Chris said, I haven't seen this movie. I don't know the last time I saw this movie and I loved it. I fell in love with it again. And I forgot how much Toontown and Disneyland is based on this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got a kick out of it because I I watched it – I actually watched this about six months ago and then watched it again for the podcast. And I liked it six months ago. It was enjoyable to watch because I hadn't seen it in so long. But I got a lot more out of it once I was watching the podcast because I had my remote in my hand where I could pause. And when I saw something in the background – and I think that was the draw of this to me this time viewing it after so many viewings – is I was looking at the background and I was noticing so many little things that you wouldn't normally see just by the pause button and and looking past the characters because they filled the screen with all kinds of of little uh, doodads and and fun things and hidden Mickey's and it was just it was so much fun watching the entire uh, the entire outside or uh, the entire frame of the movie. I'm totally gonna do that. That's a great. You idea. should. There are spots. I am. I wrote down a few of them. It was really fun. The cattle call that uh -huh. when he's walking out, it actually says cattle call, which is, you know, obviously when they're for actors to come in, they had just cows practicing their mooing and they were doing it in different little characters. And then they had uh, one of the, when Eddie pulled his animated gun out, uh, there's an inscription on the animated gun from, uh, from Yosemite Sam saying, thanks for getting me out of, of the Hooskow. And it, that was a gift from Yosemite Sam. So, I mean, just those little things. And there's one thing that I've got to say. They had 
on IMDb, somebody put a trivia that when <laughs> spoiler alert, when the dip machine uh, go, breaks down the brick wall and heads towards Toontown, as the train hits the the dip m- mobile and takes it out of frame, if you pause and go frame by frame on the train, every window has a murder or a death scene in it all the way through the entire terrain to the very end. And it was, it was so funny. I was pausing and my daughter comes walking in and she goes, what are you doing? I said, look at the screen. She goes, there's somebody hanging in a window. (laughs) I mean, it was crazy. It was funny, but it was, it was just those. And you wouldn't even notice it if you didn't pause the screen. That's genius. And you can tell the, that the people that made this movie absolutely loved these cartoons and it's kind of a tribute to them. No, I agree. I, I think that they probably had more fun making it than people had watching it. I, I watched the Blu-ray and had all of the behind the scenes. So I was watching all of the behind the scenes, how they made certain things move and how they worked with animation to make the, the real life actors work with a the with a Roger Rabbit, but Roger wasn't there and how they were trying to get him to to interact between the two of them. And we have to remember that this was before the days of computer generated uh, images. And so you've got they're they're physically having to do these things with and then they're hand drawn and hand painted on each cell after the fact. And you've got to just admire the work that was put into this uh, from point A to point Z. It was amazing. And even the the actors like uh, Bob Hoskins, um, it, it took a lot of effort to imagine what was being drawn in. You know, he's he's interacting in one scene with the weasels with their guns. Um, what I mean, him in the taxi. I, there's a lot of things that he just had to make believe, and it it was before computer generated, uh, uh, before computer graphics. Uh, took over and green screens and all that. So it was, I'm sure it was a pretty interesting shoot. Well, they interviewed Bob Hoskins after the fact, and they said how he didn't know what Jessica was going to look like, because obviously that is not a normal cartoon woman. And it was, she was quite impressive. And they told Bob to act out his greatest fantasy woman that he would ever dream of. And that's how he acted for the entire movie. He didn't know what Jessica looked like, but he acted that out. And he said when the real life or when they drew her in, he said it was, she was way more than he thought he had imagined. So (laughs) it was pretty funny. So what you're saying is he didn't know what color her eyes were because they hadn't (laughs) made them yet. Uh, yeah, exactly. That was it. Did she have eyes? <laughs> I, I don't know what color Jessica's she eyes She did are. have eyes, but I did don't she? remember what color they were. I don't either. I think they're blue. Blue seems like a good character. No, looking on, she, had, she has green she eyes. Red eyes, just like the bad guy. Green eyes with red hair. <laughs> Almost like a Maureen O'Hara type. Yeah. Well, a little more sexy, I think. Uh, I just thought that the animation that they did behind the scenes and the, I guess they went to, was it George Lucas's, um, uh, his light, light and magic. I, I don't know the name Industrial. of the company. Industrial Thank you. Light and magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were the ones that put the final touches on the shadowing. So it made it as real as possible. And I think that was, Lori, you mentioned when we 
look at our old movies, they made these guys as close to real people or, or the characters real people along with the actors. And I think that's what made this such a cutting edge movie of it in its day. You just you didn't see that they were cartoons. You saw that they were tunes as part of the story, but they were part they were part of the world. And that was established right away at the beginning of the the film with that pseudo cartoon opening with the baby and Roger, <laughs> and how um, they called cut, and suddenly you're it's just a regular stage with real eye people, and the baby has a potty mouth, and uh, you know, and and Roger can't see was it stars or was it birds that he, he, he saw birds but he needed birds. to see stars yeah. um the uh the the old baby never gets old right you had that right. what was that baby boss this year came mm-hmm. out yeah <laughs> well he has a 40 year old body and a three-year-old dinky is that what he called him yeah. but uh, what i and, and that was actually Chris, you mentioned that about the where they cut and went into real life. If you looked in the background, that's where the background stuff really starts because the mother's legs in that cartoon, you know, she's the big mother and you never see her below the knees. Mm-hmm. And when they go to live action, that if you look behind Roger and they're talking, you're seeing they've got like an animatronic lady's legs and they're dropping the the curtain dress. And it's really funny to see those things because it was part of the cartoon, but they're real life. Because so you never was, saw the body. You only saw those calves. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It was. It's just fun to see that kind of stuff. And yeah, I recommend, Lori, you go back and just pause some of those screens. You'll, you'll enjoy it. I will. Uh, what did you think of Christopher Lloyd and his Judge Doom character? He was good, but I, I just love Christopher Lloyd and I don't like him being the villain. But he was really good. It's hard not to like Christopher Lloyd. He can be he anything, can't he? He is. He's he's amazing. I just he was such a horrible. Uh, I mean, such a good villain. You know what I mean? That I was just like, no, that's Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> <laughs> I can't hate him. <laughs> <laughs> but he was gonna dip your favorite cartoon characters. I know he's gonna wipe oh. them all out. That made me sad when he dipped the shoe, though. I, I actually, I mean, I love animals, and so it was kind of like killing an animal in my eyes. It was like, oh, he can't be that mean, and he did. It was like, oh, that's why I wouldn't have a little kid watch it because they'd be wondering what what he's doing. It, that was sad. Well, it was kind of weird because uh, they they tried to establish that tunes could only be killed this way, and then later in the film. Um, they could also die by laughing themselves to death. So there's a little weirdness in the uh, in the overall story as uh, how to kill somebody. Well, I, I thought the way that Chris Christopher Lloyd played his character was he, I think he played it over the top on purpose. There's mm-hmm. a lot of you know in other movies you see overacting that's that that takes away from the story. In in his case, he played so well that he played like a tune and. What I read was when he was reading the script, within the first couple of pages, he knew he was – his character was a tune. And because by the way that he was not blinking and the way he had his – he carried his voice and how he he moved kind of stiff-like. And to know that that actor took that character and turned it into something real when it obviously was a cartoon, it, that was just awesome to me. 
and I think he can play anything he wants, but he he was truly a bad guy, and I thought that he played they played within the rules for him really well. I have to agree with Laurie though. I mean, to me, he's always going to be Doc Brown, so <laughs> he, he can't be that mean. And the guy from Taxi that, that was such, Jim. such a Jim. that was such a funny character. Have you ever seen the one where he's taking trying to take a driving test? No. And they're giving him the answer and they're all slow down. So he repeats the question slower. <laughs> <laughs> but the answers slow down. I just that kills me. I like sometimes just look that up on YouTube because it's so funny. Well, uh, that was one thing that I thought about was the way that the characters or rather the writers, they brought up so many parts to animation and making movies and so on in this movie was the dip itself that killed tunes was made of turpentine, benzene and acetone is what I read. And that they're all paint thinners that remove animation from cells. So that actually is how you kill a tune. And I, I, and then as the, during the movie, when the dip spills and so on, you see the the tunes are bouncing all over the place, trying to get away where it doesn't hurt humans in any kind of any kind. So that's why when the judge is bouncing away, you didn't know, anything about his character now what about let's talk about roger rabbit himself uh the voice is comedian charles fleischer and i i remember him as a comedian before this film came out and um he seemed his his character's voice seemed the perfect fit for this rabbit but they basically had to come up with a new character uh for this film and i think that they did a pretty good job and cast it very well with charles fleischer he's perfect I, I thought he was great. I understood that he stayed on character or stayed on set the entire time and stayed in rabbit costume uh, for through the entire shoot, even though he was never going to be on screen. And it was I think that's a testament to him as a as a as an actor to be that helpful to others. But his voice was amazing. It, it was perfect for uh, a new character because – and this is the other thing that we – I think we tend to forget about this movie. This was the very first time we ever saw Roger Rabbit. We all knew Daffy Duck. We all knew Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse. We'd never met Roger Rabbit, and he's the star of this movie. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I think that's the part that everybody tends to to discount in this case. They created a brand new everlasting character that people still remember to this day. And he's got his own voice. He's got his own, his, his own line. I mean, he's amazing. And he somehow managed like Kermit the frog has Miss Piggy, but he's got (laughs) a much better Miss Piggy. (laughs) He lucked out. Such a sweet couple. Well, you know, this movie was based on a book. And I forget the name of it, but it was something like you, uh, who shot Roger Rabbit or something like that. And in the book, they actually have Roger Rabbit dying. Uh, and that is a spoiler alert for the book. But it, it's they wouldn't do that. Warner Brothers wouldn't allow that to happen uh, for whatever reason or, or not. I'm sorry, Disney didn't allow that to happen. They didn't want their main character to die off because he's a franchise. So they, they made it a different ending. And I remember after this came out, they had little shorts. And they tried to make him an actual. I still have them. My, my kids watched it growing up. They didn't know all about Roger Rabbit. They actually, my kids know Roger Rabbit more than they know uh, the Bugs Bunnies because those were so far in the past. 
that. And they, that's why they never made it to Albuquerque. <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, a lot of kids probably might, well, maybe they still know Bugs Bunny, but you know, since that time, there's Animaniacs, there's Pinky, and the, there's so many cartoons that have come out. So I don't think those older ones might be as prevalent as they are. Um, one thing that I noticed too is you mentioned other movies. Um, Space Jam came out. It was about, was it eight or nine years after this? I want to say 96. Was it 96? And they they tried to integrate a lot of these same things that Roger Rabbit did so well. And I don't know if they were that much more successful with it or not, but I understood that Bill Murray was originally the first choice of Robert Zemeckis and um, uh, Steven Spielberg for the Bob Hoskins character, but they couldn't get a hold of him. And Bill Murray found out about this years later, and I guess he he let out a heart wrenching scream. Um, in the middle of Times Square or somewhere because he said had he have been offered the job, he would have taken it. So that would have been he a different have, dynamic. He would have been great, too. I mean, I, I think Bob yeah. Hodgkins was great, but wow, Bill Murray, that would have been... He He's... Uh, so he can be so cartoonish himself, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That would have well, been... he, in Space Jam, he was wonderful. Uh, I thought he was one of the best parts of Space Jam and having interacting with all the characters. And in this one, if he was interacting with all of the characters, that would have been so much fun to see that. But yeah, I agree. Bob Hoskins, I think having it more of an unknown to the general public was probably a better choice than to have Bill Murray be Bill Murray. I, he might have taken a little bit away from Roger. Maybe. Well, yeah, this had like the the 1940s vibe, as you were saying at the beginning there. And while Bill Murray can do just about anything he wants, I I definitely agree with that, that having Bob Hoskins uh, in that 1940s era is much better than Bill Murray. Yeah. Although I wouldn't have complained if Bill Murray was in it at all. (laughs) What'd you guys think of the music? Pretty Looney Tunes in general, but uh, there were some musical numbers. Um, notably, uh, Bob Hoskins, where he, uh, he was slaying them, so to speak. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the music I think fit, I think they integrated their, their newer songs in with the silly style of the classical forties tunes. Yeah. And Jessica Rabbit's number was perfect. It was amazing. It really set the scene for her character and. What was the the movie uh, the fabulous Baker Boys with um, uh-huh. yeah the, Michelle Pfeiffer that, with Michelle Pfeiffer and um, Jeff and Lloyd Bridges the Bridges mm-hmm. uh, that scene Both. always reminds me of that movie yeah do you know that was I didn't I was curious if that was Kathleen Turner yes and it's no it was Irving her, yes Amy Irving that I had no idea and, uh, she wasn't billed was she I think that no, was neither one of them were actually really. Yeah, they're drawn was... in later. Post production. <laughs> well, I I understood that they, in order to create Roger and Jessica, who were the two new characters to the whole movie, uh, as far as the animation was concerned, they created them using a multitude of different people and or animated characters to create what they became. And one of the the Jessica Rabbit ones was. Um, uh, Rita Hayworth, which she had. Oh, in, I can totally see that. 
Yeah, and then the gal that had the flop over uh, just, uh, D, Sandra D. Um, mm. And they had a few other ones. And then Roger was a – he was a mishmash of like five or six different things, and they were all emotional characters so that people would identify with these new characters as somebody they knew even though they were brand new. I have to say I don't see Sandra D in Jessica Rabbit. And maybe I got the name wrong, but it was the gal that had oh. her, her hair flopped over her eye. Uh, she was in Sullivan's Travels. I forget which one. Um, oh, Marino Sullivan. No, no, no. Uh, it uh. was the blonde gal. I, I can't remember. But they had yeah. all those characters. But I, the music that you were talking about, Chris, I see a lot of that music was – I really liked the fact that they mixed so much of the Disney and Warner Brothers put together in a mishmash with basically film noir from the 40s. And I, I thought they were as spot on with the music as they possibly could be, even Eddie's song. Eddie's was pretty funny because Bob Hoskins <laughs> is not a singer-dancer, but they, <laughs> I think that's what made that scene. Yes. Well, I, I really like the fact that they used the voices the way they did too, is you have all the different voices. I, I looked up the some of the voices that I I thought had died by the time this movie had come out, like Frank Sinatra and Mel Blanc and people that really were the voices of a lot of the cartoons back in the, the 40s and 50s. And I found out that Frank Sinatra was very much alive and that was his singing voice for the sword. And then uh, Mel Blanc, this was his very last movie he ever did. Mm-hmm. He died the, He died the very next year. So, And he did five voices for this movie. So I was really – I love the fact that they were the original voices as much as possible in the movie. Uh, let's go around the table here. Um, final thoughts, and do you think this film stands the test of time? Lori. You know, I wasn't that excited about seeing it again. I didn't remember how much I loved it. I watched it. I fell in love again, and now I want to watch it again and freeze and look for the cattle calls and the train windows that Bobby was describing. It definitely stands the test of time. I have to agree. This is one that, honestly, six months ago I had heard. I had forgotten about it, and I came across it and went, I should probably just watch it again just because I love so much about old cartoons. And I liked it. It was fun. I really loved it back in when it came out in 88. But then when I watched it again for this, I love it all over again. These are my favorite characters. I grew up with Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner and all those guys, and it felt like old home week. And I think the fact that they set it in the 1940s, it can't get old. And I think that's part of its draw, too, is had they have set it today like Space Jam was set during Michael Jordan's basketball years, and he's aged, obviously, many years retired, I think that kind of put the pigeonholes that movie. This one here, it'll never get old. And I think as long as you have a useful remembrance of these wonderful characters, I think it will always stand the test of time. Well, I think I'm going to just echo what both of you have said already. It definitely stands the test of time. Um, And it's got its additional charm because it's one of the last major films that uh, didn't rely on heavy computer-generated graphics. So it gives it a different look in many ways. Um, Was Space Jam hand-drawn? That's been forever since I saw that one. 
I don't know. They had a lot of green screen. Mm-hmm. So it was I'm around sure. that time when that was becoming Trend. popular. Yeah. Like that was after mm-hmm. Beauty and the Beast. And mm-hmm. yeah, it makes me respect it even more knowing that it was hand drawn. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of work. And what the actor and what the actors went through. Yeah. Well, that's probably what that seventy million went to was artists drawing. So. Well, this was one of those things where when you hear seventy million dollars was put into a movie, to me, that wasn't enough. I mean, this was one of those that they and I was looking when I print off the IMDb. Uh, list of characters, the cast, the crew, and so on. This is the longest printout I've ever ran. It was nine pages of eight and a half by 11. Three of it was for the cast and six of it was for the, all of the extras. And they were double spaced and triple spaced. I mean, this is a gigantic undertaking of people for this movie. Mm-hmm. So it, you, like Lori said, I totally respect what they, what they did when they made this movie. You print that out, you're way more prepared than we ever are. <laughs> Sorry. Well, he's got voices, <laughs> sound effects, and stats. <laughs> We're like amateurs. With yeah. this We're just happy to be on the air. Well, that's it for today's Nostalgic Review. Please let us know what you think of the film in the comments section on our website and rate it from one to five stars on that page as well. If there is an 80s film you'd like us to review, please send us an email at comments at moviehousememories.com with your name, your pick, and your location. And finally, if you are of the social media persuasion, you can look the MHM Podcast Network up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you do, please give us a follow when you find us. On behalf of the whole gang here at Lunchtime Movie Review, thanks for tuning in. And until next time, we have to get out of here. And you guys are invited. This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme song for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is brought to you by Alexander Nakarada at SerpentineSoundStudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, the MHM Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted. 